Hello, thank you so much for downloading this show. Osha here. If you've never listened to the show before, welcome. Today's episode is with Mark Visser, and uh, we'll get to him in just a second. To make this show, I work with a bunch of people that help me make the show great. Um, Rachel, my executive producer, Andy Ma, my audio producer, Bruce Steele on research, and I need to pay these people. So to pay them every now and again, you'll hear an ad. Look, you might hear an ad here, you might not. Whatever you hear, it's algorithmically inserted. You might hear me sending you an ad. You might hear no ads. Doesn't matter. If you do hear an ad, thank you. You're helping us keep the lights on here at Pod HQ. If not, you'll hear Mark Visser say something epic. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tuning into senses, when you start to just go somewhere and sit somewhere, instead of asking questions, ask for feelings like, what does this feel like? So for me in my underwater stuff, that was the secret to being able to do those really long breath holds because I could tap into a feeling which put me in a state which is called transient hyperfrontality, which means basically you're not thinking about anything that's happened in the past. You're not thinking about well, what's coming up, how long have we been underwater. And with that experience, you're not referencing fear-based emotions or experiences. Because anything that scared me when I was younger or in the past is not relevant right now. And that puts me in a state where I'm just totally present. So how you get there is by feeling. And the best way to learn how to feel is go sit somewhere or go do something that just allows you to feel feel a breeze, feel emotion, hear a sound, whatever it is, but just tune into whatever that is. That is big wave surfer, keynote speaker, ocean adventurer and author Mark Visser. And this is episode 388 of Better Than Yesterday. Yesterday. 
Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being a part of this show. This is a podcast that hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it. Something you hear on the show will help you go to bed tonight and go, you know what? Today was actually uh, pretty good compared to yesterday. It was a good one. That's it. Here Mondays with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. That's it. I've been here since 2013 and there's a lot of other episodes to go and explore. Mark Visser is on the show today. We'll get to him in a moment. Thanks for your lovely, lovely feedback about Friday's episode. It wasn't that interesting. Wasn't that interesting. If you haven't listened to Friday's episode, go back and have a have a swig at it. All talking about getting into fights on the internet and the false consensus effect. It's wild, right? It's it, If you've not dived into it, I thoroughly recommend it. It was a blew me away. It's like, why do I keep? Oh, that's why I keep. Really interesting. So thanks heaps. If you want to get in touch with me, send Osher email at gmail.com. Thanks for the support on Idle Australians, which is a podcast I'm doing with James Matheson. I'll play you a little bit more of that a little later in the show, but we had a cracking episode last week that featured Katie Fuchs, the Cox of the Australian Women's Eight in Athens in 2004. You remember what happened with that boat. And it was basically, you know, deconstructing what we as Australians expect of our athletes, of our high-profile athletes, and how we feel when they do well and how we feel when they do not do well. And it's it was a cracking conversation. And I, I, I go and find it because um, it's an interesting reflection on our, our culture and our, our mateship, rules around mateship and things like that. Um, yeah, it was, I found it fascinating and I loved the fact that we get we got to do it and I love working with James again. Just search for Idle Australians, I-D-L-E Australians in the podcast app of your choice. So let me quickly tell you about my guest today. Mark Visser is a big wave surfer. He's an author. He's a keynote speaker. He's an ocean adventurer. He is an extraordinary human being. He was the 2014, 2015 big wave paddling champion and he's a three times runner up for the ASL Big Wave Awards. One of the fittest people, one of the fittest watermen in the world. He, like, to give you an idea of what a paddle in surfer, you've seen people tow in surfing on the back of a jet ski. So when you've got a jet ski, you have, it's almost like a safety vest. It's almost a life vest in that someone is there. If they see you wipe out, they can ride behind the wave and come and get you before the next wave comes and gets you out of the danger zone. When you're paddling, you don't have that. And it's incredibly dangerous. And Mark, has faced his fears, he's faced his own anxiety, and he has conquered conquered them. And it's absolutely incredible to speak with him. He works with Lexus, which is kind of interesting. That's how we kind of cross paths. He's an ambassador for Lexus, and uh, you know, I guess you know Lexus bring him to events, and he shares his inspirational story with people. And that's how he came across to us. In that they said, "Hey, we got Mark. You want to chat with Mark?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely." So he's here because he works with Lexus. But I was like, "Yeah, I'll talk to Mark. I've been watching him. He's an incredible, incredible guy. He's he's quite an advocate for mental health and mental fitness. He takes his mental fitness as seriously as he takes his physical fitness, because you really don't want to be unfit when you." Have have to suddenly hold your breath for five minutes at a time. Uh, he's got an incredible passion for uh, mental health and mental fitness. He's also a big champion of, of being resilient and working on your own resilience. We talk through something that he did and what he had to face and what he had to do. To f- there's, a, there's a surf break in Hawaii at Maui called Jaws for good reason. It's a death machine, all right? It's a wave so massive it would, if you don't know what you're doing, even if you do know what you're doing, it could quite easily kill you. He was the first person to ever surf that break at night. 
he's got some really interesting things to say about facing your fear, about exposing yourself incrementally to larger and larger versions of the thing you're you're afraid of. He has also like kind of broken things down and 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 really trained very very hard. Like he trained for a long time in in Bali doing some intense emotional training up in Ubud in Bali. He's been working with kinesiologists. He's just kind of a, he's got a thirst for, you know, unlocking the greatest potential he has inside himself, which is what I really dug about his his story. And that he's like, this is who I am. This is my body. But what what else can I do? How, how far can I take this? And he has started to teach other people what he's learned, which I think is really, really interesting. He teaches and coaches other people in his work with world champions like Kelly Slater to working with like the SAS and the Navy SEALs. It's a really interesting, really interesting guy. And what's fascinating is this guy who is a big wave surfer and surfed this incredibly dangerous wave at night. He almost drowned when he was a kid. And it's really interesting, like in, in facing the fear of that, he came out the other side and, and the, the journey that he takes us on in this conversation is something really, really wonderful. And I, and I couldn't be more grateful that he took the time to, to connect with us. Um, you can find his website and where you can get his book and connect with him at markvisser.net, M-A-R-K-V-I-S-S-E-R.net. He's also on Instagram, Mark Visser with two underscores in between Mark and Visser, M-A-R-K underscore underscore V-I-S-S-E-R. Cracking dude. I hope you enjoy it. Even if you've never paddled into the ocean, even if you don't like the ocean, Listening to the way Mark incrementally exposes himself to the things he's afraid of and uses visualization techniques can help you get through what it is you need to get through. I promise you, it's really, really great. I got so much out of this conversation. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Mark, I'm really grateful that we could talk today because I'm I'm fascinated the only place I can get close to understanding what you've discovered by doing the things that you do is as someone who's run marathons, I know the benefit to having run marathons in my life isn't that, wow, I can run a marathon less than four hours. It's, oh, I know that when I get to 30 kilometers, and which they call the wall, and my body is telling me everything to shut down, I've still got 12 Ks in me and 12 good Ks, so fine. And knowing that I have that point well beyond so much more capacity than when my body's telling me, has served me in so many ways in the, what is it now, 13 years it's been since I, I first ran a marathon. So what I'm fascinated is the things that you have discovered by pursuing the path that you have in big wave surfing. Now, people would know what big wave surfing is. They've seen footage of it, but it's not something you do first time. Um, yeah. were, there, were there big waves where you grew up? Well, for me, it was the complete opposite. So I, uh, I started, like my journey was on farm, country Victoria. So I was like um, so far away from any ocean or swimming pool or anything like that. I think there might have been a dam on the farm. But um, at the age of maybe like two or three, I fell into a sheep's trough and I was eating a peach and I dropped it and went in after it. And I was, I think my older brother or someone that was with me, but I fully nearly drowned. I got pulled out by my hair before I did. I don't remember that event, but I remember the feeling, which was really odd because people would say, you know, surely that traumatised you. But I just remember feeling uncomfortable with water. And it was funny because as a kid, you must, sometimes you might remember something, but you remember a feeling. So growing up, I had this feeling like apparently my mum said, 
I wouldn't have a bath for like a year because of that experience. Wow. So it must have been pretty full on for a little kid. And uh, we moved to Queensland when I was about nine or ten. And it just started to make sense why I had this super over energy of just wanting to be in some form of control, needed to touch the bottom and had that high energy of fearfulness running through my system. That would have made school sports day. would have made swing carnival tough. All the carnivals tough. Um, So I remember my parents put me in nippers, like the junior lifeguard program, and I went to do the first swim. And it's you're not even swimming at that age. You're wading around one of the other parents' waists or something in waist-deep water. And I didn't even get to the first parent before every all the boys and girls in my group had finished. And then the under maybe eights were starting to lap me. And the guy just said, mate, it's best to go in. And I'm like, like, you know, it was just, I remember just thinking I'm never going to have a life in the water or I'm never going to be able to enjoy the water because of how it just seems too difficult for me. So, yeah, my experience from the bottom up was the most backwards one you could ever kind of imagine, I suppose. What was it that changed? Hanging out with, like, people and friends in Queensland is so bloody hot. So the parties are always at pools or, you know, there's it's a beach thing or it's a, you know, that's just the lifestyle in, you know, Queensland. So over time, like, I actually loved the water as a kid. Like, I loved playing in the shore. I loved all that kind of stuff. But it, it was kind of just getting pushed and pushed a little bit with friends. Like, they would catch or body surf waves. And I used to think that that was crazy and uh, all that kind of stuff. And, and little bit by little bit, I was always sort of just getting taken out of my comfort zone. It was really funny though. I remember probably at the age of say 11, sitting on the beach, looking out there going, I don't like this place. Like this place is scary, but I felt like something about it or like, let's just say there was a part of the whole connection to the ocean was really drawing me to it. And I'll I'll never forget that day sitting there going, I feel so like afraid, but so like as if something is pushing me and saying, this is okay. This is a place for you to go. And it never made sense. And uh, and it was an odd feeling. Like I remember going, why am I feeling like that? And and to even be aware that I'm feeling that at that age was pretty odd too. And then um, as I sort of progressed, I think, becoming a teenager like you know by the time you're 13 there's a lot of testosterone and wanting to prove that you're not afraid anymore so that was sort of coming through at that point still not at all comfortable in the water at that point but starting to really want to get good at surfing so catching white waters and then starting to catch unbroken waves and then the the ego of of a young adult growing up wanting to prove that he can do it was really shining strong and then I was quite competitive like as an athlete in a way, like I was good at sports, but uh, that drive was really pushing me to, to give it a nudge. And that's sort of where it really, really started. But I was doing it in a way where I was still really scared. And <laughs> so I remember just being out and going, I don't feel comfortable, but I'm just fighting through it. I was well into my 20s, I think. I was well into my 20s before I felt comfortable not being able to touch the bottom in the surf. Yeah. Because yeah, growing up in Queensland and, you know, this is before I'd done 16 seasons of Bondi Rescue and, you know, everything. Growing up in Queensland, the messaging was real and and very rightly so. Swim in the ocean, only between the flags, don't go where, past where you can't touch because you'll fucking die. 
And yeah. they were right, you know, because in the 80s and the early 90s, I mean, that's what it was. Like if you weren't really confident as a swimmer, don't go past where you can't touch. And it wasn't until my 20s I remember that just being – I really relate to that, not being able to, like, I just would get the willies not knowing what was under my feet. I couldn't even stand the diving board pool at Centenary uh, on Gregory Terrace there, knowing how deep it was underneath my feet. I just couldn't be with it. It was terrifying. Mm. You know, and that that can really, really hold you back. Do you remember the first time you went out where you couldn't touch? Yeah, well, I, I, I actually, I remember the first time I started to, I got a surfboard for my 11th, birthday oh thanks mum and dad your son's f- terrified of the water merry christmas and a butcher surfboard but mum was saying to me she <laughs> said to me you sure you don't want a bodyboard you sure because at the time i think i had a surf mat like an inflatable surf mat. best fun <laughs> best fun ever so i love catching the little whitewashes and riding it straight into the sand and then i remember saying i want a surfboard and totally going can't handle a surfboard. I don't know anything about surfing, but I so want one, right? And that was the, you know, that was the part of me that was fighting against everything. And I remember my mum saying to me, we can get you a bodyboard with the slick bottom on the bottom. It's going to be a good one. And I was like, no, no, I want a surfboard. And I got this one that had been snapped in half. And I remember paddling, like I spent maybe two years just doing whitewaters even at that age. But I remember sort of starting to get a bit more adventurous and I paddled past a whitewater and then started to get sucked out the back. And then I'm like, oh, wow, I'm with all the people that aren't sitting in the shore. Like I'm with everyone else. And I was just absolutely crapping myself and just wanted to turn around and just catch the next thing in straight away. So the tricky thing was I had some, I guess, sporting ability. So I got good at surfing relatively quick. Like at 14, I think I I got my first sponsor. So there was the part of me, that the ego side of me that was going, okay, I'm, I'm going to compete, I'm going to be a good surfer. But then there's the other part that I hadn't addressed of being afraid and still dealing with that yet trying to say that I'm not, like trying to make out that I'm totally fine. So that was probably the biggest challenge is trying to now match it with everyone else. And when you're competing in contests and competing for sponsors, you're almost trying to walk the walk when deep down inside you're shitting yourself and you know that there's something not right. So that was that was probably the hardest part and that followed me right through to the age of I'd say 20 or 21 when I first went to Hawaii and I was actually there to ride bigger surf and it was just like you've been bluffing this whole time. <laughs> right. It's very different now. The culture we live in now is very different but I'm pretty sure that when you were a teenager it wasn't like Oki or Parco or whatever was getting there in Tracks Magazine talking about fear or talking about overcoming fear or these conversations were probably nowhere in anywhere near the, you know, your heroes at the time. Yeah, and if anything, you're, you're talking it up, you know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't afraid because you, you're thinking about it from another angle where you've got sponsors that are paying you and you need to be that so-called role model that's tough and, and can handle all these things. So which is funny because it's like, well, you should just be able to be yourself and be comfortable saying, yeah, I'm learning my way through it. I'm still giving it a go. But, and that's actually later on what I became a lot more comfortable doing and that's what helped me the most and, and that's when things changed the quickest. When you get to Hawaii, they, as they say, are not here for a haircut. Like once you yeah. get to the north shore of Hawaii where the waves that a lot of people will know the name of, pipeline, backdoor, these incredibly powerful, deadly, deadly waves. I remember the first time I saw pipeline break, I remember feeling the sand beneath my feet rumbling. Like 
that's a lot of water hitting a reef and that's a lot of power to make the sand up on the beach move. Christ on a cracker. That's like, but there's so much more frightening things out of the water there as well. Like a, a white kid from Australia showing up at the North Shore. There's a lot you've got to contend with before you even get to the water. That's right. People want to punch your head in before you get out there and if you're just looking at someone the wrong way, that's sort of what happened then too. Like there's such a pecking order in surfing, which people may not be aware of, that there is a concept of waiting your turn. You're paddling out into the lineup and if you've never been there before, if it's not your beach, you just kind of have to wait. You have to wait till someone gives you the nod or someone calls you on. It's weird territorial bullshit. I don't particularly agree with it, but that's how it is. And when you get to somewhere like that, when you get somewhere like pipe or, or, or backdoor or something like that, the, the pressure is just so immense. And unless you are like a born and raised two streets from the beach person, I mean, even a bloke from Halle Eva is probably not going to get called on because he's two kilometers down the road. Um, you've really got to hassle and push and get in there. And if it's your wave, you better not fuck it up because if you fall over, they're not calling it. You'll be out there for four hours. Yeah, that's what I'm. And there's a reason there is like at first – you could look at it from a perspective of thinking, oh, you know, everyone should just share. But if you don't know what's going on and if you have paddled out there for the first time, you're like a loaded gun, you know, that's just floating around and the trigger could go off at any time. And what I mean by that is you're a hazard to everyone else because you don't know where to sit. You don't know how to take off. And if you think you're just going to stroll into one and you just get pitched, there's likely you're going to take someone else out. So that's probably why that pecking order is in place. You know, to the level that it's at, maybe that's not necessary. But I don't necessarily think you you deserve to have your car burned down. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Like yeah. you're absolutely right because a, a rogue nine-foot surfboard being pushed by three Olympic swimming pools of water coming at your head will kill you and you're 100% right on the safety aspect. But I don't know about the out-of-the-water carry-on that goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah, well, who knows? Maybe back in the day it just started off with a gentle, hey, maybe you shouldn't come out here. And then so many people <laughs> went, whatever, and then it got to the point where, okay, We've got to burn their cars down. <laughs> Just not listening. <laughs> Points not getting across. We need more effective communication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, that, you definitely got to do your time. And I think when I look back on it, for me, I think, oh, it was worthwhile doing it that way because when you're ready to go, then you've earned it within yourself, whether you could understand it from that perspective or not, because you are so confident. And like you said earlier, you have to be so ready to go that um, there's no shadow of doubt of what you're going to do. So that that comes with it, you know. So when you've got that confidence, you're definitely in the right place there and, and that gives you the ability to take off and, and make those kind of waves. Overcoming fear, I've, I've learned through my own journey in that the strategy that I had been pursuing, Mark, of overcoming fear by trying to avoid it, all it did was make it way worse, way yeah. worse. Your body thinks that's the right thing to do turn your back on it and run or minimize it or ignore it or try to avoid it, avoid the trigger, as they would say. But all that does is just makes the monsters like, okay, I'll just do some push-ups and I'll be, I'll be bigger next time you see me. Yeah. When did you kind of discover that when it came to your surfing that there had to be a point where you faced it and pushed into it and lent into it and just sat with the discomfort of how frightening it was? I think personally I pushed right through to the point where I did some seriously dangerous stuff and was fighting against it and just silencing those voices in my head. So those voices of, you know, and the reasons of there's real fear coming up and I'm just pushing it to the side and and ignoring it. I did that right through to the point after, like I, I surfed a lot of big wave spots and I really wanted to test what I was capable of and I constantly felt like I hadn't really 
proven to myself without a shadow of doubt that I wasn't still afraid. And I just kept pushing back on that the whole time. And I was going to every big wave spot that there was. And then even to the point where, you know, like I might've got a 10 at say Chopu in a contest, which is something that you'll remember forever on a really big day. But then part of me was like, yeah, but you didn't get two tens or, you know, like so I was that hard on myself that I would be just like, have I really earned it? And um, there was a project where, a long story, but anyway, I, I had this idea or it was through a friend or whatever to surf one of the world's biggest waves at night. And to me, that was an opportunity to push that barrier back and say that I'm not afraid anymore because I knew if I could do that, then then I'd be so-called free of this this fear. And I probably ignored that all the way through that to the point where in those moments I was so scared that my eyeballs were pulsing at the beat of my heart on that night. And I went through that whole experience. I rode like 14 waves that night and they were, you know, 40-foot sort of faces. Some of the sets were 50-foot and, um, you know, like from 2 a.m. through to 4 or 5 in the morning. And it wasn't until after that I felt like I was free like I felt like I'd given myself permission to accept myself. And from reflection, there was a little bit of probably six months afterwards where I, I rode the ego of that, thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a hell man because I did that, which was totally a clouded and delusional perception of what was actually going on. But when I really started to understand that, wow, I needed to nearly kill myself to prove to myself that I was worth loving or worth accepting, it was like... <laughs> Like how crazy was that? Like that was the part that really changed for me and that was where I experienced that on a really big level. Like that's the point of of what I've done to get to acceptance and all along I actually didn't need to do that, you know, and that's why I really feel although my main sort of thing that I do is surfing, I think going forward I, I think my main sort of thing would be helping other people avoid doing extremely stupid shit <laughs> to prove to themselves that they're worthy of accepting who they are. The thing is though, and I can relate to this in a bit of a way that my, for my own struggles, my, my coping mechanism uh, was to be in control and to be in control, I would be, I would speak in a commanding voice and I would be loud and I would be charismatic and I would control the room and such like this. I started getting paid for my coping mechanism. I started, I got jobs on television and on radio and I started to get, there were huge rewards for my coping mechanism. And my coping mechanism got really, really, really good. Similarly, you're getting sponsors. You're getting more sponsors. You're getting a 10 at Chopu. Now, let me just explain. If anyone's ever stood in a tube station in London, that kind of hollowed out kind of uh, concrete uh, tube that you're in, that's about the size of the wave at Chopu. And if you're standing on the platform, those train tracks are about a meter below you at Chopu. Those train tracks are razor sharp reef. Okay. I've sat in the channel at Chopu. I've been there. I've, I've watched waves. I've had the water patrol go, sets coming, everybody go that way. And I've swum uphill for the first time in my life. I swum uphill because there was that much swell coming over the reef that now the horizon was now five or 10 degrees where it was. It was terrifying. You're doing things that are without a shadow of a doubt, like walking across a freeway with your eyes shut, like well and truly the risk of death is very, 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 very real. Now, not everyone's going to get a chance to do that or will want to do that. However, I think people can relate in that there's a part of risky behavior, whether it be being in a relationship with someone that is inappropriate for you or doing a risky thing while you're drunk or such like this, that does push into those places. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's not until you really connect to the real you that you realise 
that's a total surface thing that you're doing to try yeah. and suppress everything else that's actually going on. Yeah, because you keep pushing yourself into these risky situations, but the, the sponsorship money keeps coming, the double page spreads in the magazines keep coming, the yep. video segments keep coming. Oh, it's fucking pretty fucking good here. People know my name. Yep. I'm good, good. Haven't paid for a surfboard in 12 years. You're like, this is not bad. Um, it's your nature, right? If you're a hard worker. You want people that are paying. You want to keep working hard for them, you know, doing your job as best you can. So you get sucked into almost two worlds there. So the, yeah. the ego of the glamour that's coming with it, or the so-called glamour, but then the other part of, well, I'm getting paid to do this. I need to deliver on what that actually is. So it's, it really is a tricky piece to navigate. So the wave you were talking about earlier was a wave in Hawaii called Jaws, and uh, it's aptly named. Yeah. 40, 50 feet of water, that's like... That's bigger than the big diving board at the swimming pool. That is an apartment block size of water. At night, if you go under, I'm assuming you were out there with a jet ski, but even the chances of a jet ski being able to find you. Yeah, there's a lot of safety things put in place. Um, There's a lot of planning, like nearly four years of preparation and planning. I did wipe out on one. I caught 14 waves that night, and the last one I wiped out on, it was really such a weird sensation. Like I thought for sure... Like you're driven down and normally in the day you can see which way's up because you can see colour, right? So at night you can't see that. And then I remember getting maybe a foot away from the surface of the water and seeing the stars really clearly because at Jaws in Maui there's no lights, there's no buildings anywhere near it. It's a huge cliff. The wave actually thumps straight into a cliff and there's boulders on the bottom of the cliff and the place itself is like a, an amphitheatre, like, you know, and, and it, when you talked about the waves rumbling at, you know, Pipeline on the beach, when Jaws breaks, the entire cliff rumbles and it actually sounds like there's a huge thunderstorm coming, but that's just every wave breaking. And uh, it's really interesting because I remember trying to breathe, to come up and breathe, and I was still another foot underwater and I could see the stars clear enough that I opened my mouth and <laughs> tried to breathe, but I was still underwater and I just sucked in more water. And it was just like I couldn't comprehend what was going on because I could see what I thought was the air or the stars and thinking, okay, I'm out, but I was still under because it was it was just such a weird experience and um, probably one of the most intimidating things that will ever happen to me in my life for sure at this point. You've taken acceptance or exposure therapy to an extreme level there, mate, as far as someone who is afraid of water. There's no more extreme thing you could possibly do than, than what you did. Talk to me about that moment where you're like, why did I do that? Why did I have to put myself through all that just to find this out? Like, tell me about the moment that you kind of understood the gravity of the risk you'd taken. I pushed it all to the side, you know, like the determination and the will to prove to myself that I could do it and that I wasn't afraid was so high that I literally put blinkers on the other side of it. Like the training and preparation was crazy for that. Like they said, okay, what happens if if you get pushed down so deep and you get stuck in a cave or what happens if you're sent so far out to sea and you don't know where to go? So the training drills that I did prior to it were like I'd freed over 100 foot at night on a shipwreck where I knew sharks were just to deal with that feeling of are there sharks, I'm in the dark, I'm afraid. Like I did all these things. I paddled for three hours. I think I was 24 kilometres out to sea back through like a shipping channel at 9.30. I got to the Malulbar Beach at maybe 1 o'clock at night just to overcome that fear of being in the dark. And I did all these things just to try and prove to the safety crew and the team around me that I would be okay 
But deep down, what I was really trying to do was just to prove to myself that I'd earned that ability to say that I'm not afraid anymore. And I didn't really realize that. At the time, I don't know why. I was just like, I just got to do it. I just got to do it. And if someone said why, I said, I just got it. But when I really dug deep, it was just looking for acceptance. That's all it really was. But on a, on a level where I must have pushed myself so far to the point where it was like, you can't be accepted until you prove it beyond a shadow of doubt. Where did that journey to find the acceptance within yourself start? Well, it was after that that I started to just realise like what had happened and the fact that this was what I'd done to, to get to that point and that I realised there was just so much um, ego in trying to prove these points to people that didn't even matter, you know, like whereas like what happened to the me side of it, like what happened to accepting me without having to do all this and then I really started to spend a lot of time working with people that understood this on a different level. You know, I work with a lady called Kate Reardon. She works like with the royal family and all sorts of really unique people. She, she runs a practice out of Ubud in Bali and uh, she understands things like from a very uh, different space and I just really started to tune in to myself at, at that point and then it opened up so much, you know, like it, I started to feel things that I'd never felt as far as just learning how to trust within myself but what that actually was. And when those feelings came through, what that is, and it's, I'm being quite vague, it's probably because I can't articulate it really clearly right now, but I really started to, to understand that that voice that I used to tell to piss off, you know, that voice that says you're afraid, was actually a version of myself saying, hey, you know, remember the time that this happened? I'm just letting you know because that didn't work out too good that time. Whereas, you know, and I hear that voice and I'm like, piss off, you're a pussy, that the ego me just shelves it and moves on but what was really interesting was when I actually listened to that voice and accepted it and said you know like looked at that version of me that was trying to talk to myself which sounds a bit out there but I'll just roll with it (laughs) what I was doing was accepting those experiences and also accepting a part of me that allowed me to go okay that did happen but it's not happening now you're older you're wiser you're stronger you've learned from it and you're going to be okay so instead of suppressing that voice actually accepting it and acknowledging where it's coming from and why. So for me, the example would be acknowledging, oh, well, you nearly had a, you know, drowning experience when you're younger. This is why that little fear voice is having, a, having something to say and acknowledging where that's coming from and just reminding that, that part of yourself that everything's going to be all right, that created a big shift. And then the self-love became so strong and then that's where confidence was actually built from because there was the self-worth and self-love. And all those little voices that you hear that, that undermine yourself, that rip your confidence, they're really just sirens going off that are actually asking for support. So what I really learned from that whole thing was to support that side of me and to allow that to be heard and see where it's coming from. Is it just jealousy? Is it just fear of maybe I'm not going to be enough? Is it all these things? And when you look at it from a version where you pull back, you're like, going to be all right everything's okay and then that part of you starts to calm down and then what I found was I stopped hearing that voice because it didn't need to say like you said you know that version said I'm going to do push-ups and get bigger and stronger and come back at you even harder by giving that part of you that love and that self-acceptance it didn't need to be heard it was heard it was supported and then you grow as a human and then you move on and but you have that underlying self-confidence and that self-love that supports you through that process. So it's, it's a pretty deep kind of journey, but 
going through that, I really understood. It's almost like we have an internal microphone and you've almost got to pay a lot of attention to who's holding that mic. You know, there's multiple versions of ourselves. It could be the scared mark, the fearful mark, the ego mark. And who's hanging on to that and who's saying all this stuff and, and who actually probably should hold the mic, you know, whether that's the, the version of me that I am now that's gone through a lot of other things or, you know, or the real calm version of me. And so that's really what I guess a lot of my coaches had sort of taught me to understand. And when I put that into practice, the stupid shit that I did no longer seemed relevant. And, uh, and it changed everything. Like within my career, the people I worked with, like, so we talked about sponsors and trying to do whatever it took for sponsors. And I would be working with brands and doing certain things and just doing what you got to do to get paid. Whereas going forward, I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that shit. I'm not going to work for a brand just because they're going to offer me something. You know, like I offered a lot of money to do a commercial for shots, like taking some kind of, I won't say what it is, but yeah, these shots. And I'm like, I, I hardly drink. So like I wasn't going to do that, you know. And then even so my one of my major sponsors, Lexus, they're the ones who actually set up this thing today. The way they treat people, they, they're really kind in that, in that way versus other companies that just don't care and just want to do certain things to get the sale, to get the job, to get whatever it is. And so once you change your attitude towards that, the people around you all of a sudden start to vibrate at that level or start to act in that way. And the companies that you choose to work for and associate yourself with, you start to realize that you're doing things because you like them or you're, you speak the same language that that brand may speak. It also changes, I guess, you you may not realize, because I mean, I, I can speak from my own experience in this matter. I didn't realize the messages I was sending out there and I would get resentful that how come that person's getting that job and yeah. I'm not, I'm just as good as they, how come they got that campaign or that gig or whatever, not realizing that I was completely inappropriate the way I was behaving and carrying on. There's no way that that aligned their brand with me. Cut to, you know, I'm 11 years sober now. The kind of people that are approaching me for work and things like that, it's like that would never have happened purely because of the broadcast that I was making about who I am and what I stand for and the the communications that I would send. So I totally get what you're saying. It sounds like when you're up in Ubud, you... You got very familiar with and, and learned a lot about how to, I guess, became fluent in the language of understanding emotion a lot more. Does that does that sound right? Does it sound like you were able to, for the first time, understand and have a bit of emotional fluency and describe mood states that you otherwise may have experienced but not been able to put a name to? Absolutely, yeah. Emotional intelligence is exactly what it is. You become smart enough to be aware of the fact that you're actually aware this shit's going on. So when that, that happens, I, I did work with kinesiologists and in that space for, for nearly 20 years. So that gave me a really good understanding of it. But I, I guess going to a deeper level really taught me how to articulate what was happening and what was happening within myself instead of allowing someone else to kind of tell you what was going on. So you could really program that within. And all of us can do it. And it doesn't take, you don't have to, you know, spend 18 months in a forest to figure this out. <laughs> it's a lovely forest. Like if I could go to Ubud for 18 months with my family, I wouldn't mind. It would be quite nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't there for that long, but okay. I was working with these people for that period and it really just taught me there's there's ways to connect to yourself that aren't the so-called traditional ways or the ways that are perceived by the mainstream or whatever that may be. And every individual is totally different. And uh, there's a whole another world out there when you understand this stuff you look at life so differently 
and you stop feeling like the victim all the time or, or like you said, you're not projecting off a different channel that's bringing in all these so-called things that didn't line up, you know, and that's, that's the part of it where your life really starts to change. Tell me about that. Tell me about what you know and what you've learned about victim mentality. Well, the victim mentality for me, my understanding is not taking responsibility for myself. So essentially that's what it is. So the only reason I could ever become a victim for anything is by not fully taking responsibility. And I was taught this at a relatively youngish age. When I say that, I was probably about 25. <laughs> I'm 39 now. But um, I remember someone telling me, he said, if you're in a car crash and someone's crashed into you, is it partly your fault? And they've just totally swerved and crashed into you. And I'm like, no, it's their fault. So no, it's actually your fault. And I was like, how, how is that possible? And he was taking it to extremes, but he was trying to say, you chose to get in a car, you chose to drive on the road. So when you start making these choices, you put yourself in situations for certain things to happen. And that example, I remember sharing that to someone else and I was like, surely this guy's full of shit and that definitely doesn't make sense. <laughs> and, you know, and at the time people were like, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. But then when, when I got a better understanding of it and the way that it was articulated, further down the track for me was really about knowing that every time you do anything, if you take responsibility for it, that's when you stop thinking that there's ever a problem other than the one that you created yourself. Now you've got this sort of depth of uh, ability to describe emotional states and from what what I've heard you talk about, identify parts of yourself and messaging your subconscious sends you that you can either choose to engage with or ignore. Now you've got this language that you can verbalise. What have you learned about what happens to our brains when we are in a situation that does cause us fear, particularly like the difference between thinking about what it might be like to get towed into a 50-foot wave at night at Jaws or actually doing it? Like the difference between how frightening something is when we imagine it or what it actually is when we do it? That's a really good question. So my background is I've worked for high-level military groups for six years and this training that I developed for them was something in that exact space and it was talking about the mind-body connection. So if I told you a story, you'll have a thought which creates an emotion, which creates a feeling, which totally affects your body in a sequence. Like, for example, a certain thought, let's say it is uh, me paddling over a wave and a huge set's coming, I'm stuck in, in front of it. What does that thought do? Well, it triggers a whole range of emotions so straight away the thought of okay the big set's coming uh, if I'm not familiar with that it might be okay I'm going to die or what do I do I'm in trouble so that that thought has now created that emotion of fear and then my heart rate straight away increases you know my breathing starts to get really really shallow and my immune system stops functioning and all these certain things within my body happen before the actual event of that wave hitting me has taken place so that's the really important thing to be aware of is with that mind-body connection, you're not, I guess, reacting to situations, you're more so responding to them. And that's sort of the understanding that I've had from that is for me, when I see a big wave coming, I'm not thinking, okay, I'm going to die because I put myself through that process and understand that, well, that hasn't happened yet. What can I do right now to stay safe? So the question that I'm asking myself is different. So if, if, for example, panic and fear comes in or we're responding to something, we can navigate it. If we're reacting to it, we're living in it right now. The way it was explained to me was if you could imagine my hand on my head around my face and if if that was my mind and the situation, this I'm, I'm consumed by this and what I'm really trying to do is push 
that hand away to almost have like a hand with, you know, your five fingers opened up wide, pushed away from your forehead. And if you could imagine that being a situation before you live in a state where you're just consumed by it, you're allowing yourself to decide and respond to what's going to happen before it happens. And when you're in that space, that's when you're, you're in your state of power because you're then in control. So you have the ability to decide, okay, I'm either going to freak out and die here. How does that feel? It doesn't actually feel good. So what's my other choice? Okay, I can start breathing and stay calm. All right, how does that feel? I feel better. Okay, I'll roll with that. So right there I responded to it versus me reacting to it, be shit, I'm going to die and I'm totally consumed by this whole thing. I start panicking and then I live out, I actually live out that fear response. Still, that wave hasn't hit me yet. It's still coming. But right now I'm experiencing death within myself prior to it even being a possibility. We don't even have to be in the water for that to happen. This can happen six months beforehand while you're trying to sit there and, you know, watch some TV with your wife and your body's having this because you're imagining something horrible happening and your body... Our body doesn't know that we're not there. You know, we feel the flood of emotion. We feel our hands get clammy. We feel our heart rate go. We feel our eyeballs pulse. Muscles lock. Yeah, Yeah, fists, your hands go into fists. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. We can, what's some good ways that you can find to, and I really like that analogy. I would talk about it when when I got sick is like when it was all consuming, it was like my face was up against a billboard and there was nothing I could see but this billboard of this doom message. There was nothing I could see. And as I got better, I was able to make the billboard go further and further and further away. And now it was just a part of my field of view. It was still there. It's never going to go away. But it was no longer yeah. just all-encompassing. I could now enjoy smiles of my children and a nice meal, you know, and, oh, that thing's there as well. How would you tell people the best way to start even getting space between your reactions and the choices about how you react to a situation rather than just living in the lizard brain responses what's the best way to start getting that space because it can take work and daily work to get this away what's the best way to try and work on that there's two ways so the way that we sort of teach it so what you just said there is so true like uh, what we do in our like i do a course where we teach people this stuff and i'll tell them a scenario where they're in this room and people are coming in and i watch them with their eyes closed and their bodies lock up and all the muscles go fully tense and then i stop them there and say okay open your eyes and look at yourself so you totally feel it before you're in the water, before you're anywhere, just based on that thought. And there's two ways of, of really stopping that process. Obviously, the first is being present and being aware of thoughts, and that takes training, that takes preparation. And I guess how it was sort of described as me, to me was like thoughts are like birds just making noise, tweets, or, you know, they're constantly just, there's millions of thoughts going on all the time. And being able to just observe the fact that they're just thoughts like, hey, you're going to die. Oh, hey, this is really scary. This is this. That's actually just external noise. What you want to respond to is up to you. And let's, I'll throw you to a, an example that's so fearful that you don't have time to sit back and go, hmm, I'll just observe these thoughts. And it's probably a good way to pitch it when you're explaining to someone for the first time because they're like, well, good one. I don't think I can just sit there and, and, and deal with that. So for me, when I was riding this wave at night, it was so fearful. And if you said, hey, Mark, just remember, man, just be aware of your thoughts, I would just say, piss off, it's so full on, I can't, I can't get there. But what I could do was go a step back and control the thoughts that were coming through my head to the exact outcome that I wanted. So, for example, I was driving on a jet ski, I was on the back of a tow rope or a ski rope heading towards these 40-foot waves at night. And when I couldn't really see where the waves were, all of a sudden there I could see stars and then the stars disappeared because the lump of water moved up in front of them and I knew that that was now a wave and we were heading for that. 
like I was saying, my heart was pulsing and pumping so hard that my eyeballs were pulsing with it. I was in such an extreme state of fear that I couldn't rationally stop and just observe thoughts. I was just in that process. But I knew that if I had thoughts coming through of like, don't fall off your board because you're going to end up in a cliff, that was going to run through my whole system. So I became aware of the fact that certain thoughts are going to come in. So if I don't have the strength or the the mental skills at the moment to observe what feels right, but I know that they're going to come, I'm going to direct them to the ones that I actually want. So the first step to your answer would be to control what you're actually saying to yourself. So for me, if I said to myself, you know, don't fall off, don't fall off, just don't fall off, all I'm hearing is fall off. And in a state of fear, I'm just going to literally fall off. So I had to rewire that to the outcome that I wanted, which was to stay on your feet. And I was telling myself over and over, stay on your feet, stay on your feet. And I'm driving down this 40-foot thing and hitting chops and my board was leaping out of the water in the air and I was just like, oh, it was so intense. And I kept saying that mantra, stay on your feet, stay on your feet. And my body went into autopilot and I would stay on my feet. And, uh, And that was actually a way of triggering the mind to give me the outcome that I wanted. And a real simple example of that would be, you know, if I said to you, don't think of a pink elephant, like, don't even try and think of a pink elephant, straight away it's in there, it's in your head and it's impossible not to think of it. Whereas the only way around that would be for you just to start focusing on something else to give you that thought of what you wanted. So that's a good way to deal with that while you're learning is be very clear on the language that you're using. And it's, you know, the same as if you said to a young kid, you know, get off the road, kids, don't play on the road kids mind is like they're just going to hear something about the road whereas he's like hey guys stay on the footpath i need you to stay on the footpath and they're like right something to do with the footpath let's go to the footpath so it's the same thing within yourself it's really directing the thought to be the exact outcome that you want that's the first step and the second step is learning how to feel which is a trickier process but it can be taught and it's the training part of it where you understand, like if I said to you, I do want to do this and and I'm looking at your body and you go like that when we're talking about it. It doesn't look like it's something you want to do. Well, well, I I lean back and I kind of close my eyes a little bit, my my hands cross across my body. Yeah, if I said something to you and I saw your muscles tense and and your fists lock or you just your posture turned, I know it's something that you don't want to do. So for me, straight away, I go, that doesn't feel right for you. But if I asked you to do something and then I turn and you opened up, yeah cool that sounds great straight away that feels good for you so the trick is to constantly keep doing things that feel good and at first it's hard to know what that actually is because it happens so quick feeling is way quicker than thinking and when you're working in the space of emotional intelligence you want to bypass thinking because thinking is just so much slow if you can do what feels right that happens really really quick and the people that are very good in this space, respond to feelings because it's it's a much faster process. And when you train this, this is how you start to constantly keep doing the things that feel right. Like, for example, you stop becoming a victim of whatever it was because you, you went, oh, should I do that? And hang on, hang on. I can, you become aware of the fact that things are tensing up, doesn't feel right. No, I'll do this. And you think of what you want to do and then you go, oh, that feels great. So, there's a bit of training to do in that part of it. And when you, you get good at that, that's my go-to for everything. And rationally, I'll think of something that I might have been asked and it rationally sounds like a great idea. But I know after so many years of going against what doesn't feel right, I'm never doing that. 
you know, like it might on paper seem brilliant, but if it does not feel right, I am not doing that. So I always trust feeling way more or over the top of anything to do with anything rational. And it can be uncomfortable, particularly if you're if you're uncovering something that, in your case, what you described earlier about falling into the sheep dip, that you know it's a very clear moment and a very clear moment. You are rescued by your uh, your sibling, but for some people, it may not be so clear. It may be the way they were spoken to by a sibling, a parent, an uncle, a teacher. You're fucking worthless piece of shit or whatever it is, you know, they may not remember that it's in there. There might not be a clear event to put it back to, but there's always this feeling of, no, I don't belong here or whatever. I don't know. I don't, I I shouldn't buy nice clothes because I don't, you know, I'm fat or or whatever. Noticing those feelings and just putting the, I found in my own experience, just putting the two words I'm noticing in front of whatever's going on in my body. That's like getting the spoon underneath the ring pull of the can that you can't really open up. You know, it's just like getting the little wedge in there and just start to describe little bits and pieces and that and learning how to just identify those things. Cause feeling the feelings that you're describing though, could be quite uncomfortable for someone. And people may be tempted to shut off those feelings. As you mentioned, put blinkers on them. What happens to us when we put blinkers on these, on these negative feelings and try to push them away? Well, that's when you just really stop living and um, that can be the part of the side of things where you, that's where you really need to sort of just start becoming aware of, well, what is it that I do like? What is it that I do want? You know, and um, it's easy for me to say that, but what you talked about is exactly right. The first step is becoming aware, you know, like just awareness heals everything, you know, like when you start to become aware of the fact that it doesn't feel good and things that don't feel good now could feel good in a week's time, in a day's time. But right now, for some reason, if it doesn't feel good, that's when you need to be able to go, okay, what have I got to address? Like, what have I got to pay attention to? Why doesn't that feel good? What, what is it? You know, and if you're really honest with yourself, that's the process to healing yourself because it could be, ah, oh, I'm judging myself or I'm worried I'm actually judging these other people or whatever it is. And then once again, you've exposed and, be, and dug up something else and that's aired it and, it and it's kind of cleared it. And then you might ask the same thing, oh, how does it feel now that I'm aware of it? It actually feels all right. So it's never like permanent. It's just sometimes it just needs a bit of, like you said, digging to uncover what's going on to help you feel in a certain way that, all right, I'm ready to roll with this. And that's going to be different for every person, but I think that's by far the the starting process. Just going to take a moment away from Mark this incredible story and that great conversation to just share with you for a sec. I'm, I'm going to have to play an ad, all right? I'm going to have to play an ad, but because I've got to keep the lights on, right? But you might not hear an ad, but I did want to just let you know about Idle Australians. It's a new podcast I'm doing with James Matheson. Just go into your podcast feed, search Idle Australians, I-D-L-E Australians, and that's where you can find us. We did a, a cracking episode last week, and it was all about the obsession that we have in our country of Australia about sports and the almost, I guess, unhealthy standards we hold of our sporting elite, that we almost don't allow them to have human frailty. We don't allow them to be flawed people or to ever really kind of make mistakes, especially if they're ever wearing green and gold. And dare I say it, especially not if they're women. (laughs) Oh, man. We had a great conversation on Thursday last week all about what happened in Athens in the 2004 Olympics when one of the rowers stopped rowing and lay down in the boat. And it was really, really interesting. Here's just a little taste. Wait, you don't remember working with me for a year on one of Australia's highest rating television shows, but you do remember a women's rowing race? I think I remember reading about it afterwards. The incident I'm talking about became known (laughs) 
as the Lay Down Sally event. And I got some special guests to talk about it. Guests, sir. <laughs> we have two people. Yes, there's two people. There you go, Idol Australians. You can find it wherever you find your podcasts, ideally Australians. Just search for that and you can find me and Jim. Um, all right, we're either, uh, either going to hear an ad here. It might even be me doing the ad or we're going to get back to a conversation with Mark. Here we go. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mark, like any attribute of our body, if we don't use it, it will atrophy. You know, our bodies uh, develop and fortify and adapt and strengthen the parts of our bodies that we use the most. A gym person lifting weights is a perfect example, but this also goes for the kind of stuff we're talking about, being aware of fear and stuff like that. Do you have like essentially like a workout routine that you do for this stuff? Yeah. Yep. And I started off and it was two times a week. I'd go, okay, I'm going to go somewhere. For me, I I thought it was going to be nature, you know, so I thought I'll go and just sit at a beach and just be in a space where there's nature. And there's so many different things that help trigger this. It could even be, you know, listening to um, high symphony music because the beats per second trigger a different part of your brain to let you go to a different place. It could be just, you know, going for a drive in your car and listening to the wheels, you know, rolling on, on the road or, or going over gravel, like just tuning into senses. Like, or you could be on a bike feeling breeze go over your face, whatever it is. That when you start to just go somewhere and sit somewhere, instead of asking questions, ask for feelings. Like, what does this feel like? So, for me, in my underwater stuff, that was the secret to being able to do those really long breath holds because I could tap into a feeling which put me in a state which is called transient hyperfrontality, which means basically you're not thinking about anything that's happened in the past you're not thinking about well, what's coming up how long have we been underwater and with that experience you're not referencing fear-based emotions or experiences because anything that scared me when I was younger or in the past is not relevant right now and that puts me in a state where I'm just totally present so how you get there is by feeling and the best way to learn how to feel is go sit somewhere or go do something that just allows you to feel feel a breeze, feel emotion, hear a sound, whatever it is, but just tune into whatever that is. So I would do that like say twice a week and I'd make time for it. And early stages after five minutes, I'd be bored shitless. You know, like I actually couldn't hold longer than five minutes without going, oh, yeah, geez, i got to go do this tomorrow or this. And I'm like, oh, what was I even here for? So it takes time. But once I learnt to kind of practice this a while, like for a while, 
I, I can feel within my body instantly when things are right. I even get a ringing in my ear if something isn't right. And I'm very, very in tune with that. And I'll get almost like a shockwave come over me when I know I'm doing the right thing. And uh, it's just because it's the muscle that I've trained and worked on for so long that it's I'm in tune with that. And if I have a fair few weeks where I didn't do it, I lose that feeling. It's, it's really dull and I have to go and oh, I've got to go just connect within myself again. And people talk about meditation and doing this kind of stuff. And for me, I hated the thought of going, oh, I have to do something regimented that sounds culty, that sounds like I've got to follow what everyone else is doing. Like that, that didn't sit with me. But, but what I realized is meditation is not sitting down praying to something or whatever. Medita- well, that's a form of it. But meditation is, is getting out of your mind and feeling. And that can happen from going surfing. That can happen from riding a skateboard. That can happen from playing music. That can happen from just breathing and all these different ways. And, and so everyone's it's totally unique for each individual. But when you can do that and make time for that, that's when you're basically emptying all the crap out of your mind. Like you call it like a backpack of life. Like every day you're walking around and something happens and you pick up a piece of, we'll call it crap, and you throw it in your backpack and by the end of the week you've got this heavy load that you've carried with you. But by doing these, say, two times a week, five minutes of this chilling out, you're unpacking the shit that you've been carrying around and you're lightening the load. So that gives you the ability to start to feel. So you can't feel anything if you're totally loaded all the time. So that's the starting point is feeling is everything. How you can do it is get all the crap out of your system so then that way you can actually be present and feel what's happening. And to go back to your earlier analogy, we choose to carry the backpack. We choose to carry it. We hold on to it because it becomes so much of our identity. We choose to take it everywhere with us. We choose to take it into relationships. We allow it to break another relationship if it's, you know, the same pattern. We choose to hold all of it. But because it is so entrenched into our identity, it's hard to let go of because who are we without it? Who Mm. am I if I wasn't the overweight kid? Who am I if I wasn't all of these things? Who am I if I wasn't the person that somebody left for another person? Oh, fuck. (laughs) For me, surfing is such a great analogy for life because like all you can do is be as prepared as possible and then just go with where the wave goes. You can't control the wave. All you can do is like be as prepared as you possibly can and then be as in the moment as you could possibly be because no two waves are alike unless you're at Kelly's Ranch. But even then, probably not. We're at a time now where in Australia at least and certainly other parts of the world, there's a humongous amount of uncertainty, huge amount of uncertainty. What's the economy going to look like? What's this, is the vaccine going to work? What does the world look like? You know, we're currently in Australia, we're undergoing the most intense amount of rainfall we've ever seen, you know, 13 months after the most intense amount of fire we've ever seen. This is the way our weather is going. There's so much fucking uncertainty about tomorrow, the day after, 10 years, 20 years. What have you learned about dealing with not just the uncertainty of like, you know, what's the next wave going to look like or am I going to get a good run of traffic to work, but like all of it? (laughs) Yeah, I I learned the hardest way you can learn and I learned in a way where I had what was called a sensory overload where I literally nearly fried my brain. So what you're describing is an immense amount of pressure building up, all these uncertainties, oh, what if this happens, what if this happens, what if this happens? That's a huge load of shit that you've got loaded in your pack. And I learned this from an experience where I was exiting at the back of a military plane. I was pushing jet skis out with parachutes to see if it was possible to explore waves like way out in the middle of nowhere. 
and I was going to then run out and jump out and parachute after him. And this is actually what happened. And I was doing the training for it and all the preparation, the lead up to it, I pushed the jet skis out and the loadmaster, he's the guy that tells you when to jump and whatever. He said before, you know, make sure that whatever happens, you go out after the jet ski because if you go out right behind it, the parachutes will open and they'll explode in your face and it'll kill you. And sort of he explained that to us and we knew the training and the preparation and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, on the day that it happened, he asked me to help him push the jet ski out when he cut the cord and was was sending it out the back of the aeroplane once we got the green light to go. And I nearly slipped and went straight out behind the jet ski and I like hung onto the side of the, the wall of the plane and I was like, shit, I nearly died. Like that was the one thing that he said. And then the static line, which is a line that opens the parachute, the cable snapped and a U-bolt went <laughs> across the top of my head and nearly scalped me completely. <laughs> and then I was like, fire out, I nearly died again. And then the guy looked at me and gave me the hand signal, which means hurry up and get out of the plane because you're too far away from how far off the jet ski's gone. So then I just had to run and jump out of this plane. And when I opened my parachute, my risers, which are the little ropes that you steer with, were locked on and I was looping into a real hardcore turn over and over and over. And then when, when my parachute opened and everything cleared, there was all these colours of other parachutes, my other team members around me, as bright as day. If you could imagine a Christmas tree in front of someone, all these flickering lights, like so clear. And on the radio, the guys are like, okay, can you see us? I'm like, no, where is everyone? And they, and you can see footage of me in amongst a Christmas tree of lights and I'm convinced that no one's there because my mind has fried itself from having all these experiences and I'm basically saying to them, I can't see anyone, I can't see the boat. There's, we're like so far out to sea, there's no land. And this is, there's only a rescue boat below and all this stuff is coming down and I'm in the middle of it and my mind has fried itself. And if you were directly in front of me, it would be like you didn't exist. I would see through you. I couldn't see you. And anyway, they described it afterwards as being a sensory overload and they said to me that the reason that happened was not because you nearly died the first time when you went out because you'd done the training and prepped that and it wasn't the time that the cable nearly cut your head open or the the parachute locking on, it was because prior to getting on the plane, you were dealing with everyone else's stress. So my role was to exit the plane, chase the jet ski down and land on it in the ocean to be able to go ride this way. Whereas I went into a marketing meeting the day before I was listening to the investors stress saying that plane costs 25 grand an hour to spring the props and this is going to cost this. And then I was sitting in on a production meeting where they're like, how the hell are we going to film this? If you guys get out, we can't ask you to come back in because we're, you know, so many kilometres out at sea. And I'd stored all this shit of all everyone else's problems and I'd, I'd carried it with me. And that was the thing was I learned that if you walk around with so much like stress or load on yourself and then a significant event happens like, okay, you nearly died or a cable nearly cut your head off, you can process those stressful things and be fine. But if you're loaded to the top, that's where your mind fries yourself. So I guess to answer your question is a very long way to answer it, but I learned that from the hardest way possible. I've literally nearly frying myself to the point where I'm like, I can never walk around with such heavy loads on myself ever again because in my line of work, it will absolutely kill me. And so this is where the what you described earlier, the work of constantly defragging, constantly unloading that stuff, constantly processing as much as you possibly can to allow yourself the bandwidth comes into work. 
Yeah, 100%. But you don't really get taught a lesson until you literally are at the point where you go far out, like you, you literally nearly died. And I'm, a part of me is thinking, do I have to be the guinea pig to go through all this shit and nearly kill myself to help people? But it's an interesting journey and I'm definitely, um, definitely putting my hand up to say, well, hey, guys, don't do what I did. <laughs> Mike, it's been so great to talk to you, buddy. I'm really, really grateful for your time and I can't wait to have you back on the show. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. Just also want to shout out to the guys at uh, Lexus Australia for making it possible. Always really grateful for opportunities and, and they gave us the opportunity to connect. So thanks for that and uh, yeah. I look forward to joining you again sometime soon. You got it, brother. All right. Have a great day with the kids, man. Cheers, mate. That was Mark Visser. Look at that. I don't know if I'm going to be swimming out into the channel in front of, uh, you know, Malulubar right now, but uh, it's pretty incredible. He's a pretty incredible cat. He's written a book. It's called The Big Wave Method, Eight Steps to Overcoming Your Fear and Achieving Your Ultimate Dream. It's a pretty interesting uh, read. You can find him at markvisser.net, M-A-R-K-V-I-S-S-E-R.net. He's also on Instagram where you can connect with him, mark underscore underscore visser. You don't have to be a big wave surfer. You don't even have to like the ocean, but I, I reckon you would have definitely got something out of that conversation. There's something that he said there that I'm sure rang true with you. Certainly did for me around, I guess, the impo- for me, the expo- importance of exposure therapy and the importance of trusting that my training and trusting that the work I've done will kick in when I need it to. He's a great guy. I was really inspired by him. And thanks heaps to Lexus for linking us together and, and that we can chat. I, I really appreciate that. I once owned a Lexus. Does that count? I don't know. I drive Nissans now. Nissan Leafs. Actually, the Lexus was the very last internal combustion engine car that I owned. I went from that straight to a Nissan Leaf in 2011. And I've been driving Nissan Leafs ever since. I just got the E+, Plus. actually. It's got an even bigger battery. Things got like... 350, 370 k's of range. Amazing. Anyway, we'll talk more about electric cars another time. <laughs> Go for a surf. Look at the ocean. Face your fear and figure it out. It's going to be all right. Thanks to Hyder for making all the music. Thanks, Andy Ma, for the audio production. Thanks, Rachel Barrett, for the show production. Thanks, Bree Steele, for the research. And thank you for listening. If you need me, send Osher email at gmail.com is where you can find me. Have a great week. See you Thursday with James Matheson for Idle Australians. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. 
ACAST.com.